series that I began back in February, I believe it was, and introduced it and preached two other sermons out of it, and then uh, all the things began to happen with coronavirus, and we were down for a few weeks, and, and now we've been back up for several weeks uh, during the time when we were putting out YouTube videos and things like that. I still don't like doing that, by the way. Uh, we, uh, you know, I, I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm going to wait on that series and I'm going to go to Romans 8. And I preached through Romans 8 and I thought it was incredibly applicable, one, during that time, but also in times since then with other things taking place in our nation uh, all around us. Uh, Romans chapter 8, the gospel of Jesus Christ the hope that we have in him, the future hope that we have of tomorrow, uh, the beauty of the gospel uh, seen not only in the present, but also in a certain future. Folks, I'm going to tell you, that is always relevant. And it always speaks to our hearts in every circumstance and in every situation. Um, you know, the writing to the, of the letter to the church at Thessalonica uh, was dealing with much the same thing. Perhaps you uh, recall some of the introduction of that. Paul and Silas were there, and they had delivered the gospel there, and their time was short there, probably about three months. And uh, some trouble broke out uh, there in Thessalonica, and as a result, Paul and Silas uh, left Thessalonica. Jason was drugged before the magistrates and imprisoned and so forth. And, uh, and so Paul uh, here is writing to them because he's received a message back from Timothy. Timothy has delivered news back from Thessalonica, having been sent there because of Paul's concern. And Paul's great concern was, I know that these authorities are going to continue to give them trouble. I know that these authorities are going to continue to persecute them. And he was right. But the good news was this that Paul received from Timothy. They're standing firm. They're being beaten. They're being imprisoned. But they're standing firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, that's relevant for us. And I think it's relevant for us today. I think it's relevant for us to consider and to talk about living as believers in the midst of mayhem. Now, everybody's mind just went to an Allstate commercial, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. Okay? And other people were going, what are you talking about? Yeah, it's okay. YouTube it. But what I know is this, is that there is great mayhem going around. I mean, we've got coronavirus. Uh, we've got protests in relation to racial injustice. We have riots that claim a part of that but have nothing to do with that. Uh, we have all types of injustice taking place in the name of injustice um, we uh, are, are seeing um, you know government overreach and so forth you know in thinking about delivering this message 
I had to come to a realization. I am the pastor of people who are afraid and people who are angry. I'm the pastor of those who are affected by COVID-19 and those who are not. I'm a pastor of those who have been engaged in and have suffered because of racism. And I'm pastor of those who make little of that. I'm pastor of those who are angry over government or overreach. And I am pastor of those who believe the government has not done enough. My aim as a pastor is to point people of differing opinions to the one opinion they have and the one truth they hold. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. My intent today is to bring out the answer to this question. How should Christians live in the midst of mayhem? Religious liberty is a dear thing to me. But I'm going to say this up front and I'll probably say it later. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not dependent upon religious liberty. It's greater than that. You can talk to missionaries throughout the world and find that out. The gospel is greater than anything that opposes it. I have been incredibly concerned with some of the decisions that have been handed down from the Supreme Court. I wrote in my newsletter not long ago about one that was handed down that did not have to be handed down, but it was handed down. And it set a precedent of the government telling churches what they can and cannot do. And so with that thought... I want us to understand how do we live in the midst of where challenges are being made to religious liberty? Do we rise up against the government? No. We're not instructed to do that. What are we instructed to do? I think Paul helps us to see it. And he says in chapter 2, verse 1, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. Not in vain is pointing back to their coming to Thessalonica. It wasn't a whim. It wasn't futile that we came to you. It's purpose and meaning in why we came. He goes on in verse 2, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness or courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much 
conflict or in the midst of much mayhem. Notice what Paul did. He declared the gospel of God. How should Christians live in the midst of mayhem? Let me give you a statement, and then I'll break that statement down. Christians are to deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness, motivated by pleasing God with a true heart. Motivated by pleasing God with a true heart. So let's talk about that for a moment and see how Paul is relating uh, this truth to us. And how it instructs us and helps us to know, how do I live? How do I live? Well, first, we boldly deliver, or we deliver boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness in the midst of mayhem. Paul says here in verse 2, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. He points back to just before they came to Thessalonica. Before they came to Thessalonica, they had been in Philippi. And there they had uh, proclaimed the gospel. Uh, they had led a young lady by the name of Lydia there at the river. I've actually been there. I've been to Philippi. I've been to this place where they say this is the place where Lydia was converted. It's kind of a neat place. There's uh, ruins there, and you can kind of look at all those things. Been through what they call Thessaloniki also, uh, where this letter was sent. But he points back to that in that experience that he had there. And he says there, we had suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. Why is he bringing that up? He's bringing that up to help them to see our motive is pure. We were beaten for sharing this gospel. But that did not keep us from sharing the gospel here. And so... Uh, Paul is pointing back to that, and he's saying, this is what we do. This is our calling. He even says that later on. I'll get to that here in a moment, uh, where he talks about uh, that they had been approved by God to deliver this gospel. You know, proclaiming the gospel is the activity of those who have been changed by it. Proclaiming the gospel is the activity of those who have been changed by it. Paul had been faithful to do this even in the midst of conflict in Philippi. And he did not allow the shame of public beatings and the suffering he and Silas endured to deter him from his calling of proclaiming the gospel. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 16. There we find the narrative of this, of what he's pointing back to. The suffering that he endured there. He and Silas both endured uh, there in Philippi. And right after he departed Philippi, we find him where? In Thessalonica. 
And so I, I want us to, to see here that Paul and Silas, they had gone there. They had gone to Macedonia, uh, responding to the Macedonian call. And they had gone to this place, and this was uh, a leading Roman city, Philippi was. And uh, they had gone there, and they were proclaiming the gospel. Verse 17 says, on, uh, verse 13 of chapter 16, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard us, who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, her and her, old, her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So we see that Paul was after uh, doing the will of God and the work of God of spreading the gospel of God to Philippi. He was there for a number of days, it says. Uh, and as he was going back and forth to this place of prayer, as he was going back and forth there to proclaim the gospel, certainly, uh, but uh, you know, to, to make known that, there was this slave girl who was following him around. And uh, all of them, Paul and Silas and all of them, and they were following around, and these, uh, these people, they, they owned her, and she had a spirit of divination, and she would, they were making money off of her fortune-telling and so forth. And Paul, it says, got annoyed. I can get it. I get that. You ever get annoyed with somebody who just won't be quiet? Uh, Paul just got annoyed, and what did he do? He turned around, and he looked at her, and he, he commanded the spirit to come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ. And guess what? The Spirit came out of her. And these guys are kind of like, man, there goes our, our income. And so what did they do? They hauled Paul and Silas before the magistrates. These were not Jews who hauled them there. That was the case in Thessalonica. But these were not Jews. These were uh, citizens of Philippi. They were Roman citizens, if you will. They were uh, uh, merchants, if you will. And they were uh, probably influential and probably wealthy. And they hauled these guys in to the magistrates and, and they began to say uh, in verse 20, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. First of all, one thing I want you to see here is that they were stripped and beaten without a trial. Secondly, I want you to see that they were imprisoned without a trial. I want you to see that not only that, they were put in the inner chamber where there was no light, and they were put in stocks as though they were harmful in some way. The jailer took seriously the order that he had been given by the government officials. As you go on down, you see, you know the great miracle that took place, right? I mean, sometime after midnight, Paul and Silas, what were they doing? They were praying, and their, their praying turned into singing, and uh, an earthquake happened. Okay, they weren't singing that loud that the earthquake happened. God delivered them in that way, all right? The jailer came in about to take his own life, and Paul said, hey, don't do that. We're all still here. 
And the jailer was converted and his family was converted. The next morning something happened. The magistrates that had put them into prison sent police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Paul said, "Uh -uh, not so quick. You publicly shamed us. You publicly beat us. You did it without a trial, and you imprisoned us. If they want to release us, let them come and do it publicly, and let them come and do it officially. That's what's going on here. And so Paul said to them, well, I just told you, so I'm not going to read that. I didn't leave anything out. Verse 39 says, by the way, he reminded them, and we're a Roman citizens. That scared them. Verse 39, so they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. I want to point out a couple of things. Paul insisted on those who beat and imprisoned them to do it, to let them go publicly and officially, and I think there are at least... Three reasons why he did that. The first was so that the believers remaining in Philippi would not be regarded as targets for further abuse. I think if they would have just snuck out of town without some official capacity of the the, the ones who imprisoned them saying, these guys have done no wrong, I think other believers could have been in jeopardy. I think that was probably one reason the second reason was to maintain the integrity of the gospel Christians that is front and center for us to maintain the integrity of the gospel Paul had been proclaiming preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and it was by the authority of the name of Jesus Christ that he had cast out uh, the, the, the spirit of divination which is why he was in prison the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. And so by those officials coming and officially releasing them and publicly releasing them, the integrity of the gospel is intact. And they say these guys did no wrong preaching the message they preached, nor did they do wrong by casting out that spirit. Upholding the integrity of the gospel. Secondly, thirdly, to hold the governing authorities accountable. Injustice had taken place publicly and had to be acknowledged and set right publicly. Paul did something very similar in Galatians when he looked uh, to Peter, who was eating with the Gentiles, and then he wasn't eating with the Gentiles when the Jews came. And because Peter sinned publicly, Paul corrected him publicly. Paul sensed a need to do that. The governing authorities, all of them, throughout the world, are ordained by God. And so is the church. 
I want to read to you a, a little quote that I found from R.C. Sproul. He wrote a while back on this. Uh, and he shares his opinion and he brings out some points that I think are helpful to us in this. He says, I think it is a marvelous structure in the United States of America that does not allow for the state to rule the church or the church to rule the state. Historically, that meant that the church was answerable to God and the state was answerable to God. Separation of church and state assumed a division of labor. The church has its job and the state has its job. The church is to not to maintain a standing army, and the state is not to do evangelism or administer the sacraments or ordinances. He was Presbyterian, ordinances. Nevertheless, they are both regarded as being under God. Unfortunately, in today's culture, separation of church and state means separation of state and God. And if the state and the government were answerable to no one but themselves, as if the government didn't have to respond to God. But God monitors governments. God raises them up and brings them down. Every human government is accountable to God and is accountable to maintain its affairs with justice and with righteousness. When the government is no longer acting justly and no longer protecting life, sanctioning abortions, for example then it is the task of the church to be the prophetic voice, to call the state to task and to tell the state to repent and do what God commands it to do. It goes without saying that I have strong opinions in regard to the things that are taking place and happening around us. Our nation is currently in an uproar concerning racial injustice, the handling of the coronavirus, and violations of religious and personal liberties. I've had multiple conversations concerning each one of these things. I'm sure each of you have expressed your opinions to others about these things. So I only have one question. Who did you share the gospel with? Who did you share the gospel with? What did Paul say? I suffered. I was shamefully treated. But we had the courage in our God to declare to you the gospel. Where? In much conflict. Who did you share the gospel with? My opinion about these things will not save one soul. They will not change one heart. But the gospel will. How do I know? Paul, how do I know? Me. He changes those who are sinners into servants of the king. Your opinion not rightly set in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying don't have an opinion. I'm saying be sure and weigh your opinion against the gospel. Don't weigh it against anything else. 
Weigh it against the gospel. Weigh it against the mandates of Scripture. Weigh it against the promises of the Word of God. The rights that we have of religious liberty and personal liberty here in the United States of America are not man-given and they are not government-given. They are absolutely God-given. The church has a responsibility, or the, 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 the government is ordained to maintain those rights. And the church is ordained and called to temper those rights with moral guidance so that those rights are not used to destroy life, but to give life and to save life, to put forward justice and not exercise injustice. Religious liberty is worth fighting for. I believe it's worth dying for. But the gospel and its proclamation is not dependent upon religious liberty. It is dependent on the obedience of believers in Jesus Christ. So how do we as the church, how do we as individuals do this? My second point. How should Christians live in the midst of mayhem? Christians should be motivated by God's pleasure and glory rather than desire of glory and glory of man. Rather than the desire of glory in man. Christians should be motivated by God's pleasure and glory rather than the desire and glory of man. Look with me at verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He's talking about the purity of their motivation. One way you can see the purity of our motivation is we were beaten for, uh, for proclaiming this gospel, and we brought it to you anyway. And while we were there, we were beaten again. Run out of town. By the way, there's something important, I think, that we need to look at in the account of Philippi. They obeyed the order to leave the city. That's important. They obeyed the order to leave the city. He wasn't there to cause trouble. But he also was going to protect people. But we see here their motivation wasn't erroneous, it wasn't impure, and it was not intended to deceive. Our appeal does not spring from these things. In other words, our appeal, and he's talking about the appeal, not, not merely the message, but their proclamation, their appeal. Where does it come from? It says here, uh, for our appeal does not spring from, 
Spring is not even in, it's not in the, in the uh, Greek text. The word there is ek, okay, out from, all right? It's not coming out of hearts, and I, I believe that's what he's talking about. Our hearts have been tested by God, he says. We're not trying to deliver error, something that we know to be erroneous. We're not doing that. We're not doing it with any kind of impure motive as to gain something, nor are we trying to deceive you away from any truth. But instead, this message is true. And we are delivering it from pure hearts that have been approved by God and whose message has been approved by Him. And so we are delivering the true gospel. You can check it. Because the apostles, many of them were still alive. You can check it with the church of Judea. They know the truth. You can check it anywhere. Our plea is not motivated by any gain we expect to receive from you. We're not being greedy. We're not trying to get anything from you. And as a matter of fact, we had authority that we chose not to exercise. He's saying our motivation is not any of these things. Our motive is not to flatter you. It's not to make money. Hear what he says. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor were the pretext for Greek. God is witness. Notice he says up here, God tests our hearts. God is witness that this is true. Nor do we seek glory from people. So he's saying we're not delivering a message that is pleasing to men. And we're not expecting words of praise from men. It's not our motive. What's their motive? Obedience. They want to please God, it says. Not to please men, but to please God. That's what we want. We want to please God. We want to share with you the gospel of God. What will change things? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're to obedient, be obedient in spreading that gospel if it changes nothing. Hey, Ezekiel, go tell these people this message. By the way, they're not going to listen to you. Hey, Jeremiah, I've got this word I want you to speak to my people. Just want you to know, they're not going to listen to you. Hey, Hosea, i got a message I want you to deliver. They're not going to listen to you. Our obedience is not dependent upon whether people hear, listen to the truth and respond to it. Our obedient is dependent upon us doing God's will, no matter what the results are. Paul said our motive is we want to obey the living God. Our motive is the gospel and the transformation of lives. I don't just want to share the gospel with you. I want, what does he say? 
we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. We not only want you to hear the gospel and respond to it, we want to be part of your life and lead you to know the living God more. And we'll take a beating for it. And we'll be imprisoned for it. Our motivation is obedience. Our motivation is never, well, I'll show the government. That's never our motivation. In Daniel chapter 6, we see the familiar story of Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel had risen to quite a bit of authority in, religious, in the government. As a matter of fact, he was the king's favorite, and the king was about to make him second in command. His fellow satraps did not appreciate that. And we notice in verse 5, where it says, Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel. In other words, Daniel was a guy who walked uprightly. Man, they were looking for something. They were looking for some dirt on this guy. They couldn't find it. They said, The only way we're going to find it is if we find it in connection with the law of his God. What are they saying? They knew Daniel's faithfulness. He was faithfully obedient to the living God. And they knew it. They knew. He won't go against his God. He would never do that. That's the type of integrity that Daniel had. So they came up with a plan and they went to the king and they said, Hey king, why don't you put out a document and an injunction that if anyone prays uh, to anyone other than you, uh, uh, why, why, don't we, why don't we just say this, for 30 days, then they're going to be punished with death. King Darius, he's kind of like, <laughs> okay. Kind of a prideful guy, I guess, but he loved Daniel. Verse 10, when Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his home where he had the windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. That right there, as he had done previously, that was his custom. It's another thing to say, Daniel was always faithful to do this thing. He walked in faithfulness. He walked in obedience. So what we notice is this is that Daniel's faithfulness was known to the satraps. It was known, it says right here, to himself. And then later on, the king even points out after the lion's den. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually. The king knew it too. The king knew it too. The king knew he was faithful, always. He was obedient.
Here's what I want you to know. Daniel knew that the document had been signed. And it did not deter him from doing what he always did. Daniel wasn't taking a position of, hey, you know what, I'll show this king. As a matter of fact, he makes sure to state that. Because I was found blameless before him, God. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. My intent was not to harm you, king. My intent was to be obedient to God. So what am I saying? How do you live as a Christian in the midst of mayhem? You live obediently. Making Daniel a rebel here demeans his faithfulness to God and replaces his priority of worship, worshiping God, with the priority of defying the government. Nope. His priority was worshiping God. And in so doing, he defied the government. Let me state this to you. As Christians faithfully live the gospel in a society that consistently denies God, our obedience will eventually become criminal. You don't have to try to, to, to go against the government. Just keep being faithful. Just keep living obediently. Just keep proclaiming the gospel. Just keep doing what the Word of God teaches us to do. That's why I asked earlier, who would you share the gospel with? I'm not going to affect Washington, D.C. But I can affect this area right around Westwood Baptist Church. I can affect local government. I can't do anything about what's going on in Washington or Michigan or anywhere else. But here I live. And here I will obey God. And here I will proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because as Christians live, faithfully live in the gospel, live the gospel in a society that consistently denies God, our obedience will eventually become criminal. You don't have to expedite it. Well, that kind of helps us with the individual thing, Brother Rick. What about as a church? How shall we live as a church body in the midst of mayhem? Well, we don't have to change a thing. Let me share with you our three values. What we will do is we will live out these timeless values of laying biblical family foundations to produce many godly generations. We'll continue to accentuate the value of a family which is the bedrock of any society. Let me put forward a, a timeless value of raising the standard of biblical literacy that the people of God would be the people of God who know the Word of God and not merely know the Word of God but seek with all their heart and passion to live the Word of God. 
And lastly, how should we live as a church body? Personally spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to Anderson County and all the nations. Make known the gospel everywhere. We live in mayhem. There are many other things to say about the many other things that are going on in our nation right now. Y'all know I could stand up here for the next three hours and do that too. You also know that I'm not going to have an opinion unless I check it against the Word of God. I'm not going to have a shared opinion. Let's put it that way. I'm going to try my best not to do that. Because I always let this trump my opinion. I always let this. And I encourage you to do the same. I always want you to know the gospel. Share it. The gospel changes lives. The gospel changes cities. What they say in Thessalonica? These men have come and they have turned the world upside down. The gospel transforms lives, churches, and communities. Let's pray. And Father, with great love for you, we want to obey. God, we want to thank you for the amazing love you have shown us in Christ Jesus. We want to thank you, God, that you have given us a purpose higher than any other, and that is to make known the word of life and to stand firm against injustice. And to stand firm, Lord, against those who would come against you. To stand firm, Lord, against authority that seeks to call us to do what you have not commanded. And commands us to do what you have commanded us not to do. And Father, may we never live in that way. But may we always find the truth in your word and live according to Christ Jesus. In your word, your spirit, teach us, God, how to live and to love until we are home with you. Let our witness be your glory and your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing. Jesus. Thank you. The mystery of the cross I cannot call.